0: So today we're going to talk about harvest um, quality control, solving the price puzzle, and then we're going to talk about some of the um, the methods that you can use for extending your season. So this is an example of how not to harvest. A great example of what what to do is what not to do, right? Um, Let me explain. if there's a crop that needs to um, be, have an efficient harvest time, it's going to be flowers. Um, because ideally, you don't want to be out picking flowers when it's 80 degrees. Um, otherwise, you're cutting into the base life of your flowers. And as locally grown flower farmers, we, we kind of take pride in the fact that our flowers are going to last the customer five to seven days, which is far superior to what they're going to get at the grocery store. Um, but if we're out harvesting in the middle of the day, we're cutting into those days of time that the the uh, flowers will last, and so um, then we can't really we can't really guarantee that people are going to get seven days out of their flowers. So um, the harvest time, ideal harvest time is between 5 a.m. and 11 a.m., um, and then you can harvest again at dusk. Uh, but then again, you're working against um, it getting dark, and all those good things. So um, one thing uh, that does help is if you have a walk-in cooler, it does extend your harvest window some. But the struggle is real. Um, And so I learned. (laughs) very slowly, actually, that you really just have to have a very concrete plan for how you're going to get out there and how you're going to get this thing done before you even walk into the field in the morning. Because if you go out into the field, like I used to do, and you, just, you look around and you say, oh, this needs to be harvested, and oh, this needs to be harvested, oh, and this is ready to harvest too, and you, you just get the buckets and you start picking as fast as you can. What happens is at the end of your harvest time, 11 o'clock rolls around, it's too hot to harvest anymore, and you have a whole bunch of buckets of say, black-eyed seasons, and not enough buckets of snapdragons, and then you're assembling bouquets, and... You don't have enough Snapdragons, so you're constantly running back out to the field to get more Snapdragons. They're in the heat now, so their base life is go- going down as you're doing that. And then you get to the end of it, and you have three extra buckets of uh, Black Eyed Seasons that you never, ever use. So um, that can, is just kind of an example of how not having a plan and just going by whatever is ready to harvest um, can be a very inefficient way. Of doing things, so I'm going to just share some tips with you about how to uh, increase your efficiency of harvest. So. The number one thing for me is to dress appropriately. Now, (laughs) this may seem strange to you, but uh, when I go out into the field in the morning, if I'm wearing sandals and shorts, my toes and fingers are gonna be frozen uh, within a little bit, and I'm gonna be going looking for um, warmer clothes, which eats up time. Um, Also, you've gotta account for the fact that Um, by 11 a.m. it's hot out. So you're going to need to go back in and change again if you're not dressed in layers. So I dress in layers and I actually have it down to a science now where I know according to which layer I'm taking off what time it is. It's great. Um, So the second thing is have a place for your tools so they're ready. I can't Stress this enough. Uh, there's nothing like spending the morning looking for a pair of clippers that you misplaced um, to eat up your precious time. Uh, washing buckets every evening. Now you can wash buckets in the morning. It takes time. It's cold. Um, not super. Not super pleasant. So, but you have all the time in the afternoon when it's hot to be able to take your buckets. The, beca- the reason that this is such an important thing is um, the. The rule of thumb is if you can't drink out of the bucket, your flowers shouldn't be either, because it's the bacteria in there that clogs the, the pathways in the in the stems of the of the flowers and they can't drop the water. Um, all right, so choose a rhythm and stick to it. So um, a lot of times if if you see somebody new come out into the field, they're gonna be like, Bending down, oh, this looks nice. They clip it, they stand up, they pick up, pick off all the leaves, and then they stick it in the bucket, and then they're like, OK, where's the next flower? OK, this one's good, and so on. Very inefficient when you're trying to do um, an efficient harvest and mass production. Um, so you need to get a metronome rhythm going in your head. Um, for some farmers, that goes. Pick so they're down here. Pick, pick, pick. Strip, strip, strip. Pick, pick, pick. Strip, strip, strip. And always your eye is going to the next flower that you're you're looking for. So you're never hesitating between flowers um, for for what you're gonna go for next. Uh, personally, for me, I prefer to do uh, pick, strip, pick, strip, pick, strip, and just never straighten up in between. Um, and. Later, I'll talk about when, when we go to the forest, um, there's a certain number of stems that you have in, in a bunch. So instead of pick strip, pick strip, what's going through my head is one strip, two strip, three strip. Otherwise, I'm going back and count, recounting how many stems are in my hand. Um, so the other thing is to harvest only ingredients for the day's sales. And that's what I just covered when um, I was showing you how not to harvest. Um, so start the day with a plan. This is what my weekly schedule looks like. On Sundays, I deliver to grocery stores. Uh, and I also make my florist list for the week. So when you're selling to floors, I mentioned yesterday that selling to floors can be kind of hard, and you have to become a bug. And um, so I have a three-day sequence for contacting my floors. The first day, I make a list of what I have. If you have your handouts, um, I have an example email um, in there of what I would send to the floors. It has the exact um, quantities of everything, the prices of everything. So I make that on Sunday, um, and then I do farm stand sales. Um, Monday, I'm going to call the floors and harvest all the forest orders. Um, And then Tuesday, um, I will do more harvest of the florist orders or um, just deliver to the the, uh, florist. Tuesday is my day for deliveries of individual bouquets. So I get a lot of orders through the week of people who don't necessarily want a subscription, but just want an individual bouquet for a birthday or uh, for someone in the hospital or whatever. I only do that on Tuesdays. Um, So that's my day for that. Um, Wednesday is grocery store again, Um, and then my hotel orders happen on Wednesdays. Um, And then Thursdays we do subscription deliveries and farmers market in the afternoon. And then Fridays are my weddings. So um, the reason this is important is because um, it will affect what you're harvesting. Per day, um, so I'm not gonna. I shared yesterday how when you're selling to wedding florists, you're gonna you're gonna need a completely different flower than if you're selling at the farmers market. So knowing what market ahead of time that you're going to be um, selling to that day will determine what flowers you actually go out and pick, and then. Um, Having a recipe determined ahead of time is gonna be a huge time saver for you. So this is an example of what I would do for um, a grocery store bouquet. So um, yesterday I talked to you guys about the five ingredients that go into um, a bouquet. It's the greenery, it's the focal flower, the um, filler flower, the Erin Whimsy, and what am I missing? Spike, thank you. You were listening. (laughs) Uh, So here in my grocery store bouquets, this is the same five ingredients, uh, but it's times 60 bouquets. So uh, when I go through my recipe, I have five stems or three stems of each variety. Usually the five stems is the greenery. So you can see five times 60 bouquets is going to be 300 stems of basil for me. Uh, and then the three stems of each is going to be 210 zinnias. It says plus 10 because zinnias and marigolds are the ones that are going to break on you really easy. So you always want to just have an extra bunch there because inevitably you're going to crush something or break something. Um, So it's easier to just go ahead and pick that extra 10 already. Um, 210 marigolds, 210 rutabecchia, and 210 amaranth. That is going to be what I put in a... Like a midsummer uh, grocery store bouquet. Um, so, really, it's just paying attention to the little things that save us a lot of time, um, even just the buckets there. So, um, I only ever put 60 stems in each bucket. The reason I do that is because I want to be able to look out in the field when the girls are harvesting and be like, okay, there are three buckets of basil. I can tell that, so that's, you know, however many that is. And then um, I know automatically, Okay, we need to still pick 120 more stems of basil. Uh, So that's a lot easier than running back and forth to your buckets, being like, how many bunches are in here again, or how many stems did I stick in there? So if you're always consistent, putting the same number of things in the same buckets, um, it just makes things so much faster. You can think less. It's great. so if I was going to put this into a bullet list of like what, the, what the sequence is um, and how I think through my harvest, it would look something like this. The day before, I would sit down and I would um, think about who's the customer going to be. So I would look at my schedule and be like, okay, tomorrow we're doing grocery stores. Um, then I'm going to identify the quantity of bu- uh, bouquets that I need to make, so does the grocery wa- store want 60 bouquets or am I doing subscription customers and I need to make 40 bouquets um, and then, um, then I look at my recipe that I, I want to use for that day and I want to say, Okay, so for this recipe, I'm going to need the five stems of basil per bouquet, and then the three of zinnias, the three of marigolds, and so on. Um, And then from there, um, I could translate that into overall, you know, multiply that by the number of bouquets that I'm making, um, and then turn that into the number of buckets of each variety I need to harvest, and then washing the buckets. That's the day before, okay? So the day of, I roll out of bed. It's barely light out. We're going to fill the buckets with water and conditioning agent, um, and we're going to put the buckets out by each variety. So um, I have 300-foot-long beds so when i go out to harvest i don't want just having uh i don't want to have just one bucket at the, be- the beginning of the row so that i'm running the you know however far i am down the row back and forth that's really inefficient um so i'm going to put one bucket every 100 feet um so that's going to be 300 or uh, three buckets in my 300 foot row um so putting out the buckets, and then you're going to pick like mad, and really, uh, I, I once heard a farm farmer describe her husband as being like a ticking time bomb when he's out in the field, and that's really what you have to turn into, um, is you just have to turn into this maniac out in the field picking as fast as you can, because you only have a couple hours to get it all in. Um, and then you're going to collect your buckets and move them to the cooler. So... Um, then they sit in the cooler for two hours at 40 degrees. This is the, con- the minimum conditioning time. The maximum conditioning time that you want to um, allow your flowers to condition is 24 hours. Uh, and remember, we're, we're local flowers. Our, our main marketing push to the local community is that these flowers were picked fresh. And so there's no point in selling three-day-old flowers that have been sitting in your cooler. I mean, you can do that if you're in a pinch. Um, but it's not, it's not ideal. So my, my whole myself is to move them out of, off my farm within the first 24 hours of picking, um, ideally it's within that same day after the two hours of conditioning is over. So conditioning agents that I use, I use three mainly, there's some others that I use sometimes, um, but the Hydrofloor Clear 100 is a really good one um, for hydrating your plants uh, or your flowers after you picked them. Um, And that's that's the one that needs two hours minimum. Um, It also suggests overnight, if you want to do a more dilute solution of that, And then the Floral Life Crystal Clear 300 is the packet for the consumer. So I used to have a big bucket of the Crystal Clear 300, and I would scoop it into the bouquets before I went and delivered for subscriptions or whatever. Uh, But I found that it actually adds more value if you put the packet in there, and the customer puts it in there themselves. Because they think, wow, like, you know, they're doing this really professionally, which we already were, but they couldn't tell. Um, the other thing is is that you will have spills in your car. Um. <laughs> When you're out there delivering, like, it's just inevitable. It's going to happen. You're going to lose water. If you already put your flower food in the vase uh, before you have your spill, then tough luck for that customer. They just lost all their flower food. So um, that is why I switched over to using the individual packets. And the other nice thing about the individual individual packets is that um, if you're doing grocery store uh, bouquets or whatever, you can just rubber band it on the bottom of the... Of the bouquet. Okay, the last one that I use is very handy. It's Floralife Quick Dip. And this stuff is magic. Um, it is a one second dip in the solution to hydrate your flowers. So if I'm in a serious time crunch, I will use Quick Dip. Um, also, it's CBR for the we- wimpy drinkers. Um, <laughs> the best illustration of what happens to a wimpy drinker, I think, is. Um, it is illustrated by the rutabecchia in that um, I can go out and, and harvest a uh, big bucket of rutabecchia and 30 minutes later, even if it's not in direct sight, it's, you know, in the shade or whatever, 30 minutes later, it's you know, completely dead-looking. Um, but you give it 30 minutes in the cooler with hydration, and it will come back to life. And I've actually had, because um, I'm, I'm currently doing trials for shipping, um, that's the direction I would like to take my business, is to be able to ship bouquets. Um, and so in a trial that I've run, I've taken this Rudbeckia that within 30 minutes will look dead, um, even in water. You hydrate it properly, either using the quick dip or the HydroFloor. And um, I've had it sit outside the water for over 24 hours and then put it back in the vase, and it lasts two weeks in the vase. So um, really, really effective to use these solutions. All right. I'm about to get on my soapbox here. Uh, <laughs> quality control is a huge deal if you want to be a flower farmer. I once had a florist tell me that she couldn't afford to pay the price of uh, flowers for locally grown flowers that she could pay for uh, flowers coming from the wholesaler. And I was like, does she not realize that the flowers that come from the wholesaler also come from someone who's a local farmer? Um, but then she proceeded to tell me her reasons why she couldn't afford to pay um, for local flowers the same as she could for the wholesaler, and her reasons were this. Um, they're not, uh, the, the flowers from the wholesaler are uniform, so I can use every single stem that they bring me. Um, the stems are always long enough, uh, there's no blemishes the flowers are harvested at the perfect stage, and they're refrigerated all the way until they get here. And when she got through, you know, listing all her reasons why, I had I immediately came to two conclusions. One, this lady had been scarred by uh, flower gardeners who um, were presenting themselves as flower farmers um, and hi- who didn't know what they were doing. Um, and... Conclusion number two that I came to was that I could be all that and more because um, I live less than two miles from this lady. And so my flowers could ship to her door 10,000 times faster than from Holland. Um, and so that means overall better vase life, right? So it should mean better quality of flowers. Um, and so my, my point in telling you that story is that as a flower farmer, you are a professional. Um, and so you need to meet that standard. Um, and that means that nothing should leave your farm unless it meets the standard of professional presentation. Um, and so um, if we're looking at uniformity, um, you need to make sure that your blooms are all the same, generally the same size. You don't want to have some you know, big, beautiful, Uh, blooms and then some mini ones that don't look very good. Um, You want to have long stem length. Um, I think the industry standard is um, 14 to 16 inches in length. and it can be variable, but that's, that's pretty much across the board. That's what you're shooting for. Um, I do let it slide if it's 10 to 12 inches in length, but nothing less than that. Um, so straight stems. I once had a conversation with a fellow flower farmer, and she was like, yeah, well. You know, I know that the florists want the straight stems, but, you know, I just think there's so much character in it when it's, you know, just doing its thing and stuff like that. And I was like, that's not very good because what the, fl- what the florist can use is what she's used to working with, and that is straight stems. So you don't want to give character and that kind of stuff. If you want to deal with stuff that has character in it, use it in your own bouquets, but don't be selling it um, as if you're a professional to a florist, because um, they're more professional than you, they think. Um, Okay, so straight stems. Um, and then a consistent quantity you know you want to be able to provide consistent quantity to your customers so that's why it's so important to do the succession planting and that's the advantage of having a a larger farm over a smaller farm Uh, so on my farm I grow almost a half acre of flowers. Um, and so it's easier for me to meet these expectations because I can afford to be picky, whereas um, some of the people that I work with have very small gardens. Um, and so they may only have one bunch of snapdragons and to offer to the florist. And if one of those stems is you know, damaged or something, then they're up a creek because um, you always want to provide 10 stems minimum to your to your florist in a bunch. As a general rule of thumb, I always do 10 plus 1 because um, I figure that one, if there's a high possibility that something could get damaged in transit, and if something does get tra- damaged, then I don't feel bad just pulling one of the stems out of the bunch and giving the 10-stem bunch. You'd be surprised how florists pick up on that. I have had so many florists be like, I recognize what you're doing, and I just really appreciate that. Um, so, ten plus one. Um, again, the industry standard for length is 14 to 16 inches. 10 to 12 inches is acceptable. Now, what do you do if you're if you're growing something that's too short, um, that doesn't meet meet that standard? First of all, you can use them yourself, right? Because you're creating bouquets, you're doing subscriptions, um, that kind of thing, and so. Um, there's no reason you can't use that yourself. Um, And so that's what happens with all my my flowers that don't quite reach the length standard and all that kind of stuff. The other thing that you can do is offer a discounted rate. So I grow a lot of sweet peas, and I love the sweet peas, um, but it's difficult to get the right length sometimes. And sweet peas, actually, the industry standard is 10 inches, I believe. Anyways, a lot of times I can get sweet peas that are only this long, but they're still beautiful. They're still nice. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of an experiment, and I uh, let the florist know that I had sweet peas and that I would offer them at a discounted rate if they would like something that was sub-industry standard. Um, I had to make it very clear, though, in that email to the florists that if I did have sweet peas later on in the season that reached the the appropriate length, the price would be going up. So you want to make sure that you make your expectations clear so that later on in the season, they're not being like, well, you sold them to me for six be- or $4 before, and now you're selling them to me for $6 a bunch. Um, OK, so bloom age, this is another thing that you want to be careful of. The two things that you can run into is either holding them on your farm too long after you've harvested them. That will um, be moving a product off your farm that is is too old for sale. Um, the other thing is, is harvesting too late. And this could be a class all in itself. I want to recommend that you get the book um, by, uh, Florette, that um, is the cut flower grower. Uh, Florette Farms Cut Flower Gr- Garden Book. Um, she goes through variety by variety and tells you exactly when is the ideal time to harvest something. Just to give you an, a, a kind of an example of how diverse this is. Um, dahlias. Um, dahlias have a very specific time to to be picked. You can't pick them until they're mostly bloomed. Um, but once they've fully bloomed, it's too late. Um, whereas zinnias, they'll be fully bloomed, and you have to do what's called the wiggle test. So the wiggle test is when you grab the zinnia down at the hard part of the stem, and you just wobble it back and forth. If the head goes like this, it's not ripe. If the whole plant wiggles like this, then it's ripe. Um, and you can't tell the difference just looking at it. You have to actually wiggle the flower to, to try and see if it's right. Uh, um, yeah, it's Florette flowers cut. Uh, where is it? Flower cut flower garden. Thank you. Um, just look up Florette, and any of the books that she that she's written are very helpful um, resources. Yes, and I have a handout page that has um, a book list of things that I recommend that you read, um, and it's on that list. So peonies, you're going to want to harvest it in the marshmallow stage. What that means is that um, it's still in the bud, it hasn't opened at all, and you go up to the flower and you kind of squish it. And if it feels like a marshmallow, it's ready to pick. If it's still rock hard, it's not quite right. Um, Larkspur, you, you harvest it when one-third of the blooms are open on the bud. Snapdragons, you only have to wait until two to three of the blooms are open on the, on the spire. Um, lilies, you pick them when the buds are barely just showing what color the lily is going to be. And yarrow, you have to wait all the way until 80% of the flowers are open. So you can see there's a broad spectrum, and my recommendation to you is really go and study out the varieties that you're going to grow, so that you know exactly, um, what you're looking for. And just as a side note, um... You're going to spend a lot of time googling things your first year, and that's okay. I remember feeling really guilty my first year because I felt like I spent more time looking at my screen in the middle of my field than actually working. Um, But remember, this is a very steep learning curve for some of us um, who don't have experience prior to growing, I had zero experience. And so um, your first year, it might come a lot slower than your second year or your third year. Um, as you learn the information, you will get faster at it. OK. And then the last thing um, that, oh, the last two things that have to do with quality control is the how you um, how, how you handle the flowers post-harvest. So we've already talked about getting the flowers out of the heat uh, very quickly. I just, um, I was reading on Triple Red Farms' uh, blog, and they were talking about how they used to, before they uh, went to the commercial size, they used to uh, deliver all their flowers in the dark because they wanted to be able to have it at the coolest part of the day. What you want to avoid is having your flowers out in the heat, and then you put them in the cooler, and then they're out in the heat, and then you put them in the cooler. You know, the fluctuation in temperature, every fluctuation that they go through cuts a day in your base life. So you want to keep it cold, <laughs> okay? 40 degrees is what you want to keep it at. So if you're transporting... You know the flowers in the middle of the day. You're going to be air conditioning your car before you ever get the flowers in there um, to make sure that it's it's cool enough that you're not going to cut into your vase life. Um, so then the last thing is no blemishes. Um, I hope this one would be obvious to you, um, but brown spots are not okay. Uh, but Chewing is not okay. but droppings are not okay. Bugs are not okay. <laughs> uh, Browning centers. This is one that I catch my my um, employees on a little bit. Um, is after. Particularly, zinnias is one that I I really watch carefully because after they've been pollinated by the bees, the the pollen turns from yellow to brown. Now, that doesn't necessarily affect the vase life, but it affects the overall presentation of your flowers. And so if you have any kind of browning starting to uh, occur in the center of your flower, you don't want to use it you have better stuff to offer. Um, so be really picky about that, because that actually does matter. Um, and then the last thing is uneven petals. If something isn't symmetrical, don't use it. Um, it happens a lot with zinnias, again, um, and sometimes it's just Petals coming out of the center where they're not supposed to you can just pull those out um, and then use that and it's fine um, but if you can't fix it and make it look symmetrical then just find something else to use. Um, side note for those of you who are wanting to do flower farming but on a smaller scale can you feel like Um, Maybe you don't have what what it takes to be able to produce the quantity to be able to be super picky with your product. Collaborate with the people around you. Um, For me, I have six other growers in my valley, and you have to do some digging around to find them, Um, but once you find them, you know, If you don't have enough yourself, you can run over to the, to the person next door and be like, hey, I need you know, so and so many bunches of Snapdragons to add to my order. Can I buy them off of you? And we do a discounted rate for each other, so we sell them to each other as if we were florists. Um, and then we resell the product for the retail price. Um, so that's how we work it. Um, OK, we're going to try and tackle the price problem really quick. Um, And it's nothing that you can solve really quick. This is something that I am trying to work on constantly myself. Um, So I don't think that I have all the answers on this necessarily, but I'll share some tips that have been very helpful to me. The first thing is the ASCFG pricing guide. Now, ASCFG is the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, and they have a lot of educational resources available, Um, and all all the growers that are have been doing this for years and have tons of experience are part of this group. And you can get a lot of knowledge from just um, associating with them. So it does cost, I believe it's like $200 a year if you email them first and say and ask a legit, legitimate question. They may give you a discount. Um, <laughs> that's what happened to me. But they have the pricing guide. Um, their pricing guide as um, the gospel truth. Uh, they want you to use it as a suggestion and work out your own um, ideal for what your prices are going to be. But it gives you a really good idea of where to start. Uh, so I re- highly recommend that even though it is a bit expensive to join the co-op, um, but as a first-time Um, farmer that you do that because that will be invaluable information to you. Um, The florist email that I added in your handouts, um, the example of what I sent out, will be helpful to you just to kind of give you a general idea of what um, wholesale prices go for. so generally speaking it's usually between 65 cents and a dollar so that's a pretty um per stem so if you're selling it to the florist in a 10 10 stem bunch then um you know six dollars a bunch or whatever um that's a pretty wide range most everything falls between 75 and 90 cents uh stem um but really what you have to do is you have to look at um, what it costs you to produce the product um, and what the, what the flower is worth in the market around you. So you have to really do some digging for that. Um, then the last resource that I provided for you is an example of the Boston USDA flower list. Um, that one is a little bit overwhelming to look at, it's kind of like looking at the GOC catalog. Um, and just as a as a warning to you, I pulled this one from December 29. So the prices reflect that it's winter right now. And I was looking at it going, oh my goodness, like I don't charge that for um, certain things. And I realized that th- these are winter prices. So they're pricing them 50 cents to a dollar more than, um, than what you would price them in the summer. So if you go and just Google USDA Boston flower prices, it'll be the first link that pops up for you on Google. Um, And you can keep track. It gets updated every week or every few days. So um, you can use that as well. Um, I'm going to try and walk you through um, kind of what the different price points are on our farm. So we'll start with the DIY weddings. Um, DIY weddings is when a bride wants flowers, but doesn't necessarily need a florist service um, for, um, for her flowers. So you're providing flowers by the bucket, and it's 65 to $75 a bucket, and each bucket holds 65 to 85 stems. Now, um, <laughs> to keep things simple, you give them an option on their colors. And you might offer them a choice of one to two varieties. But once you get them saying, I want you know so and so many stems of carnations, and I want them in this color, in this color, and this color, it just gets really complicated fast. So I highly recommend that you keep it really, really simple um, and just give them one color option and um, tell them that you'll try and cater to one variety, but nothing more. Um, and that's how you can keep it down at a pretty pretty reasonable cost. Um, weddings, if you're going to do it as a florist service, you're going to mark up, so you're going to take the ACFG prices per stem, and you're going to mark that up three to four times the amount of what you would pay for the wholesale prices. Um, this is how florists make money, um, and so you don't have to feel bad about doing this because this is just industry standard, um, and it is normal to do that. Also, you're gonna you're gonna price all your supplies twice as expensive as what you paid for it, um, so that you're also making money on that. Then you gotta consider the hourly wage. Um, I was reading an article recently, and a well-practiced florist. Um, said that it takes her 13 hours to produce one wedding. So if you consider that you are a newbie, um, it's going to take you a lot more time. Obviously, you can't charge as much per hour. (laughs) But um, just keep that in mind. You have to set an hourly wage that is going to pay you for producing this. And then you can have a design fee. My design fee is $40 because I don't actually... um, I don't spend more than two hours um, working p- with people on their designs. So, um, and then a delivery fee. You're going to be driving to the venue or um, picking things up afterwards or waiting for the bride because she's late or whatever. You don't want to deal with that um, unless you're actually making money there. You don't want to have dead space there. So set a delivery fee. And then you just you let people know up front what your prices are um, and have it preset so that you're not changing it per person. Um, And that is how the industry kind of um, works weddings. Mass marketing. So this is talking about um, uh, grocery store bouquets, mostly. Um, if CFG their price guide, has three columns, one is for the retail client, one's for the wholesale client, one's for the mass marketing client, um, and so if you have that, again, it'll tell you straight up what your prices are going to be. What I found, um, I, I started working on a contract with Charlie's Produce, which is the grocery store bouquet... Um, uh, third-party service, so you can't, if you want to sell to a grocery store, um, I would suggest that you go to the the privately owned grocery stores, these are your mom and pop kind of grocery stores, you can work straight with the produce manager at that store. Um, It's pretty easy to work with them. But when it comes to your chains, like Safeway and other places, there's a lot more hoops that you have to jump through, and they won't buy directly from a local farmer. So what you have to do is you have to find the the third-party seller for your area happens to be Charlie's Produce in Washington Um, and so I actually included a handout if you're interested in learning more about that uh, with all the all the instructions for um, getting getting involved with Charlie's Produce Um, but what I learned from trying to get the contract with them is that their standard bouquet has 16 stems in it and they pay the farmer seven dollars for those stems and then the grocery store turns around and and charges fourteen dollars for it so in the end you get about half of what the the bouquet is worth so keep in mind that if you're doing mass production You're making revenue on not necessarily bouquet by bouquet, but on mass quantity. So for example, um, when I figured it out, it was 162 bouquets per pallet in order for Charlie's Produce to come and pick up a pallet, um, a load of bouquets from you for the grocery store. And in order for it to be profitable for me, I had to be at least shipping out three to four pallets a week, which I wasn't quite ready to do that yet. So um, I decided not to go with that. But it was a a very useful exercise because I learned a lot through it. So um, anyways, plan on pricing your your bouquets um, at half of what their retail price would be if you're doing mass marketing. Um, And then produce a lot of it. Um, Wholesale. So this would be to your florists. Um, again, the ASCFG pr- uh, price guide is invaluable on this. Um, but you can also reference the florist email that I added in your handouts. But it's usually between $7 and $10 a bunch. And you don't have to pay sales tax on this. But if you're going to turn into a rate- retailer s- seller, which is somebody selling at um you know, doing subscriptions or something like that, Um, and weddings, you're gonna have to pay sales tax. In my area, sales tax is 8% of every sale, so you wanna figure out what your sales tax is and make sure that you include that in your cost, or else, you know, have your cost, listed cost, and then add on the sales tax like they do at the grocery store. Um, So, and then it's gonna be a marked up price from the wholesaler. and you don't want to forget, if you're, if you're doing supplies, so like for my subscription bouquets, um, I, I use vases for them. Um, I, I only buy vases from Goodwill, and my budget is $1 to $3 per vase. Um, so I try and keep the price pretty low, but you have to make sure that you're covering those costs of supplies on top of covering your costs of flowers if, if you're going to be using supplies. Okay, Um, we're going to turn our attention to a completely different topic now. We're going to talk about the cool flowers method, when to plant, um, and um, how to make your, your, essentially how to make your season a bit longer. Um, The biggest issue in, in flower farming is that everybody wants flowers in spring. That's when they think of flowers mostly but you're still struggling to get to get started for the season a lot of times the flowers don't actually come on until mid-july so that has you up a creek a bit unless you plan really carefully Um, lisa ziegler she has the flower uh the gardeners workshop Um, It's a course. I highly recommend it if you need some education. Um, But she came up with the Cool Flowers Method and teaches it. And um, essentially what it is, is planting spring crops in the fall. Uh, That way the roots are established way before winter comes. And then uh, once winter comes, the the plant kind of sits there. And it looks like it's dormant. But really what's happening under the ground is the roots are continuing to grow and establish. And so you plant a a seedling that was started, say, in March, next to a seedling that was started in the fall. And um, within weeks, you'll see that the one that was planted in the fall shoots up way faster and blooms like weeks before the one that was started in the spring. So it's really effective in getting that head start. So if you're wanting to have Mother's Day flowers available, you're really going to have to study this out and um, figure out how to make this work for your farm, because that is the trick to getting um, flowers sooner, unless you have a greenhouse, in which case, you know, that that really helps, too. So. When you come to cool flowers, you're working with the hardy annuals, the perennials, and the biennials. Tender annuals are excluded from this. Tender annuals are the things that the packet says put out two weeks after your last frost. Um, if if you guys are more more familiar with vegetables, um, a good example is like tomato plants. If they go through a hard frost, it's gonna you know, maybe freeze them and kill them. That's going to be the same thing with your tender annuals. Um, Again, I added in your handouts a list of what is tender annuals and what is hardy annuals. So just make sure that you dig up that information. That might be a shortcut for you. Um, But in general, I work with mostly hardy annuals. Um, And the reason these guys are so cool is because literally you can – Not kill them. Uh, This is me getting a late start on my fall planting. This is actually October, so I wasn't so late, but obviously it already snowed on me, and I'm still out there planting the plants. Because these plants are almost indestructible um, when it comes to the cold. They can handle the cold. Um, And so, um, yes. Yes. (laughs) So uh, I made a mistake and I planted three, don't ask why, I don't know why, but I planted three rows of 300 feet of rutabecchia this last year and then didn't use any of them hardly. So uh, I didn't want to get rid of them though because I constantly have people asking if they can come and take pictures in them and stuff and that we're going to turn that into a revenue source at some point. Um, So I wanted to move them to a different part of my farm and uh, it happened in the snow. Um, So in order to be able to deal with the cool flowers, you need to know three pieces of information. Um, You need to know your, or I guess two pieces of information. You need to know your hardiness zone. So what zone are you growing in? For me, I started out growing in um, zone um, 7, 7A, and now I'm in 6B. So I'm in a slightly colder zone. So my my window is, is about shortened on two weeks on either side, um, and then you need to know the zone hardiness of each flower that you're working with. This can be a little bit difficult to dig up sometimes, um, if you want to get an easy way out, just buy the book Cool Flowers by Lisa Ziegler, um, and she goes through variety by variety, like what are some of the top ones to, to do this method with. Uh, but a lot of times, like if you're ordering off of Johnny's, you can go and scroll down to the, the specs and growing information uh, part of the listing and it will tell you this this plant is is hardy to, say, zone seven. So down to zone seven, even, you can stretch it a little bit sometimes. So I grow in zone six, but I'm even gonna plant my, my flowers that are hardy to zone seven, I'm gonna plant them anyway um, in zone six over the winter. Um, so uh, the only way, you, the only thing you can't do is, um, plant something that's only hardy to zone 8 when you're in zone 3, it's not going to survive the winter. Uh, So I I recommend that you only stretch it to one zone warmer than what you're actually at, Um, otherwise it it gets a little bit risky. So here is um, an example of my planting list, and I have provided all of this to you in the handouts. There are 11 plantings that you want to do in your successions um, as a flower farmer. So at the top, it says late spring bloom. So all these flowers that I'm planting, I know that they're going to bloom for me in late spring. And then plant them six to eight weeks before the last spring frost. These are hardy annuals, so that means that you're actually putting them in the ground six to eight weeks before the last spring frost. So if you need to start the seed, you're going to calculate actually three weeks before that or four weeks before that when you're actually putting the seed in the plug. Um, so then it lists out for you the different varieties that you can do do that with. Um, By the time you get to planting number eight, you can see that you're mostly planting successions of your tender annuals. um, Because the thing with cool flowers is that they do best in cool weather. Um, And so once it gets hot, you can still get some of them to produce for you. um, But the quality goes down. And we've already talked about that and how important that is. So you start to kind of transition um, to, the tender annuals on planting four and five, I believe. Maybe planting five. Um, And then this is the most important one for your your hardy annuals. This is planting 10 and 11. These are the last ones of your season. Um, And these are the guys that you're planting um, in the fall for next spring's harvest, so you're really thinking ahead, um, and so these ones have to be planted in the ground six to eight weeks before the first fall frost. Okay, so they have time to establish before you um, before you have your Hard freeze or whatever, and then it's helpful um, if you're if you're planting in the winter. It's helpful to cover these things, um, but you don't have to necessarily. They're pretty they're pretty hardy themselves. Um, but one thing that I've seen a lot of a lot of farmers. Um, use as an excuse not to plant, is they'll be like, oh, I missed my planting date. And so I have to wait until next year to start them. Um, I don't believe in that at all. Um, I actually believe in stretching the planting dates in either direction quite far. You know, ideal planting is exactly what it says, ideal. Um, and so if you're, if you're two weeks after your ideal planting time, go ahead and plant them still. This is a prime example of that. Um, this was my first season trying the cool flowers method, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. And I didn't know the planting dates and all that kind of stuff. So it came to be late October. And I was like, oh, I need to start my seeds. Well, obviously, that's not going to give you six to eight weeks to establish those plants before the frost comes, right? Um, And so I ended up with trays and trays and trays of snapdragons and stock and Lysianthus that were this big. And it was Thanksgiving weekend, and the ground was covered in snow. And even in the greenhouse, the ground was completely frozen through. I kind of weighed, <laughs> weighed my two options. And my option number one was plant them, and they'll probably die. Or option number two was don't plant them, and they will die. So I went for plant them, and maybe they will die. Um, and so I went out to the greenhouse with my pitchfork. This is an unheated greenhouse. It's just a cold frame. And I went out to the greenhouse with my pitchfork, and I worked really, really hard to break up the frozen clods of dirt in there. Um, and it wasn't soil when, it <laughs> when we finished with the project. It was just kind of chunky, frozen stuff. Um, and we just stuffed all the, all the plants in there, because I didn't have anything to lose at that point. So that was Thanksgiving weekend. We got all the snapdragons in um, and the lisianthus. I didn't get the stock planted until the first week of January. So again, very, very, very late. Um, to be sticking it in the ground. But I had the best Mother's Day harvest of snapdragons in stock. And then I had Lisianthus, which usually blooms in August. I had it blooming for me in June. So um, you can see that even if, even if you miss your, your projected time to start, go ahead and do it anyway. You might be really surprised how um, effective it is to just plow through, even past some of the big obstacles that you face. Um, and then the last thing for to consider when you're extending your season on either side um, is the fall side, the winter side. Um, plant a lot of pumpkins. Plant corn. Um, you'll be surprised that florists want pumpkins and corn when it comes to, um, comes to the fall. So plant the specialty corns, you know, the painted glass, um, corn and things like that. You have to grow enough of it so that it pollinates well, ask me how I know. Um, <laughs> I got four, s- four cobs of that beautiful corn and that was it. Um, but. My mom grew a half acre of sweet corn, and I had a florist approach me, and she said, "Hey, um, you know, I I would really like some corn stalks. Can you sell me some corn stalks?" And I was like, "Sure, yeah, actually, I have a lot of corn stalks." And so I went out to I went out to the the corn patch, and I started cutting down corn stalks, and my dad started laughing at me. He was like, you think you're going to sell those? And I was like, yes, I think I will. And it ended up being a family competition for us uh, to see who could sell the most corn stalks. And we were taking them out by the trailer load. Um, Our our town has a fall festival every year. the Scarecrow Festival, and so they they decorate the entire town in corn stalks. So I got that sale; it was great. Um, my sister got, um, you know, the farm stands around us wanted corn stalks to sell to customers, so she got all those sales. So she did a lot more than me. Um, <laughs> and then we tried to sell them retail; it didn't go so well. So so the best places to look to sell corn stalks is the uh um, your, your little farm stands around you, and then um, if you can find a fall festival somewhere, those are pretty great. Then you move into fall wreath making. Um, the other thing that you can do is, uh, there are a lot of varieties of flowers out there that you can dry. If you ever get to a place where you feel like you're producing more flowers than you can sell, um, go ahead and dry them. And all you have to do is you tie them up and you hang them from the ceiling of your shed. They dry very nicely. And then you can make dry coquets and you can sell those. Um, and then my favorite is the fall wreath making classes that we do um, where people pay to come and um, we have an event and teach them how to make their own fall wreaths. And then, of course, everybody wants to make their own, um, their own Christmas wreaths, too. So, um, making Christmas wreaths is a lot of work. Like, just setting up the whole event is a lot of work, and I've decided that it's easier to make the Christmas wreath making kits and let people buy them off of you as kits and make them at home than to actually put on an entire event. The other thing that you can do if you have a greenhouse is sell bulbs of amaryllises and paper white. Like, you plant the bulbs and you sell them um, as either potted plants or cut flowers um, in December. That takes a little bit more of an investment, though. So you you can literally extend your season all the way out through December, and then you're ready to start planting again in February, March. So you can see that it carries you all the way around the season, um, and there's enough work to go around forever. So um, we made it through all our stuff. I think I have, do I have a couple minutes for questions? Okay. does anybody have any questions? Clarification on anything. Ashley. The handouts should have been sent out in an email. Yeah, so I highly recommend you go and look at some of those things. There's more handouts that I added in there, um, like social media accounts to follow and books that I recommend. Um, So go take a look at that, and that'll get you started with some of the education of things. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, She asked if I conditioned the zinnias in the cooler. The answer is no. Um, Zinnias are one of the varieties. There may be a few others, but it's a, oh, basil is another one that really struggles in the cooler. Um, They will turn brown if you stick them in the cooler. So if, if it's a hot day and I'm needing to move product really fast, the two hours doesn't hurt the zinnias. Um, but anything more than the two hours, yeah, they'll turn brown, and that's that's not good either. So with zinnias, you really have to focus on moving them off your farm really fast. Yeah, that's a very good question. She's asking, um, how do you deal with the wedding industry when most of the weddings are on Sabbath? Now, I realize that a lot of people have different... Different ways of dealing with this. Um, For me personally, what has worked is setting the expectation with the customer early that I will not be servicing them on Saturday. Um, So that brings you down to two things. Either you get weekday and Sunday weddings, which happens sometimes, or you tell them that they have to come and pick up the product before 5pm on Friday. Um, That's what I do. So um, that works well for me. You know the the um, the client comes and picks up everything by 5 p.m. on Friday. We still have a long time till sunset, so it doesn't cut into Sabbath at all, and it's off my hands. The where it gets tricky is if they're having an outdoor wedding or something, you know, something could always go wrong, and so you need to make sure that you're providing them tools to be able to help themselves if some, you know, I've had it where a bride bouquet got stuck in the fridge, and it froze, and like, you know, certain of the flowers had to be replaced, and so um, you have to have extra flowers stuck in there. You can charge them for it, because it's an upfront, you're you're communicating upfront. If they don't want to do it, then they don't have to go with you, um, but you add it an extra bunch of every variety of flowers. That way if something freezes or something wilts or whatever, they can just stick another flower in there in that place. Um, and so that works. The other place where it gets tricky is with arches and installations. Um, and so I mostly do intimate weddings, um, elopements, that kind of thing. Um, and if you want a, a real no stress way of getting into weddings, start with elopements. And, um, and, uh... yeah and photo collaborations actually the way I started with weddings is I did photo collaborations so you look for vendors of the wedding industry who want to um, produce some pictures for their marketing and then nobody gets paid for it but everybody has a chance to practice their part and you get great pictures out of it and everybody markets using those pictures um, and you get the pictures for free so that's helpful so back to the installations and the arch what you do if you're doing an intimate wedding usually it's not you know a super elaborate arch and i have interned with an adventist lady who does do the high-end weddings and stuff and she does manage to do the more elaborate um arches and stuff um, but what you do is um, you get the foam cages it's uh it's uh oasis foam and it's inside a plastic cage Okay, And then at Home Depot, you can get zip ties that are this long. um, And you stick those zip ties through the foam cage. And then you build your, instead of building your insulation on the arch, you build the insulation on your table. And then um, it's movable, right? So then they come and pick it up from you. You show them exactly how to use those zip ties to tie it on anywhere they want on the arch. um, And they're good to go. So. I don't know how it works when it gets to the more elaborate arches and that kind of thing, um, but as far as the simple stuff goes, that's how you do it. You give them, you know, you soak the floral foam way beforehand um, and make sure that there's there's water picks that you can use, different things to keep those flowers hydrated through, um, you know, overnight so that the next day they're still fresh. So that's how you deal with that. Did you have a question? Okay, okay. Okay. So the question is, how do you use your basil and is this basil that you use in the kitchen? Um, So the basil that I use is Mrs. Burns lemon basil. I also use Thai basil. I use cinnamon basil and I use, uh, my current favorite is called, um, I used aromato, I didn't like it. It's amethyst improved. Um, Amethyst Improved is a really hardy one. Um, so not, not your typical um, one that you would use in the kitchen, although we do use it sometimes in the kitchen, because um, there's lots of it out there. Um, the way I use it, it's a really cheap greenery to produce. Um, so you, you can use it all the way from when it starts leafing out to after it's bloomed, which you typically wouldn't let it go to bloom if you're using it in the kitchen, but when you're using it as a flower, it, you know, the, the flowers add interest to the bouquet. Um, and so I use it with all my um, kind of lower end bouquets that I'm making. So that would be grocery store bouquets and farmer's market bouquets, just because of the price point. Um, but again, it's it's one of those things that it's difficult to hydrate. So you either have to have quick dip for it, or some people, uh, instead of using quick dip, uh, boil some water and quick dip it in the boiling water. Um, I don't like using that method because it's easy to steam your your leaves and turn them brown. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, the, the zinnias can't handle the 40. It would be everything else that you're trying to, to get. Um, the zinnias can handle down to like 45. Um, that's I keep mine around 43 degrees more. Um, And that way I can stick the zinnias in there for the two hours, and they'll be fine. But did everybody hear what she said? She has a tea kettle um, that she keeps in her, um, yeah, an electric kettle that she just can bring the basil stems in, put it in there for seven seconds. It works better than boiling a pot of water. Um, And then she also, um, instead of having a cooler, she just has a cool room that she moves them to so that they don't turn brown and that kind of thing yeah so it's so funny um you you give somebody a bouquet and the first thing they do is they stick their nose in the bouquet well most of the time we're not growing flowers that actually have any scent at all so um i <laughs> i always laugh when people do that um but um, There's two ways that I've learned to deal with this, because people want that smell. They're expecting to have some sort of aroma attached to the bouquet. So I go heavy on the herbs. I really go heavy on the herbs. I use thyme. I use basil. I use oregano. I use peppermint. I use um, sage is one of my favorites to use. That one's another one that's difficult to hydrate. Uh, but I, I really make sure that I'm using... Oh, and I use tons of eucalyptus. I grow eucalyptus as well. Um, and those all add scent to the bouquet. The other thing is, is you can you can be mindful of uh, the... Oh, and the, the lemon burns basil is my favorite for the aroma. It's just... It, it smells amazing. Um, but as far as flowers that smell really good, uh, my... My recommendation to you is to grow sweet peas because um, sweet peas really have a strong scent, um, and stock has a really strong scent. Um, and there's one more that I use, and I'm blanking at the moment. Uh, but but find find one that smells good. Oh, lilies! I use lilies, but. You're going to have to be careful. If you're doing subscriptions or anything like that, you need to make sure that you're talking to your customers and making sure that there's nobody with allergies. Because if you're using lilies, you will lose customers over that. (laughs) Um, And so just make sure that you keep track of whether somebody has an allergy or not. Yes, so something that's very helpful with the lilies is to take off the pollen. So when the lily opens. There's these beautiful orange pollen things. <laughs> I'm very scientific. Um, oh, oh, stamens. thank you, that um, drop pollen everywhere. And it stains the flower, it stains the carpet, it stains the counter, it stains you, and you're just like, oh my. Um, you can actually, what I do is as soon as that lily opens, it's the pollen hasn't quite, um, Released itself from the capsule yet, and so you can pick it off, and it's not even polleny yet. Um, you pick those things off, and it doesn't do anything to the flower. the The little stamens are still there. You're just taking the pollen part off. Um, and so, if you have somebody who's like, "Well, I don't want it to get all over my carpet," then you just, you know, tell them I take the pollen off, and it won't be an issue. So, are we out of time? Yeah. Okay.